Welcome to another edition of the Ringer NBA Show. Today we are joined by Chris Mannix of Yahoo's The Vertical, uh, the Chris Mannix Show on NBC Sports Radio, a CSN New England uh, NBA analyst, a boxing podcast. Like, how many jobs do you have, man? Good grief! I try to stay uh, take take money from the least possible bidders. I mean, anyone that will throw <laughs> cash in my direction, I will uh, accept it from. Uh, so uh, pretty much it's unlimited at this point. <laughs> All right. So last night we look around the league, and I guess the biggest story that came out of last night was probably Carl Anthony Towns having 47-18, and 18, which is a monster night, and yet it comes in defeat. Not even when Carl Anthony Towns has 47-18 and 18, can the Timberwolves beat the Knicks. Now, Porzingis had a, had a big night on the other side, but what are we thinking about the plight of the Knicks and the T-Wolves? Because that was a game it seemed like a lot of NBA fans were paying attention to. Yeah, I was watching that game last night just to, you know, for a couple of reasons. First, Minnesota, their problems with closing out games have been well documented in the first month or so uh, of the season. They, they, they just, they're experiencing the, the perils of youth. And, and even though Tibbs is a great coach, uh, there are certain things they just have to kind of go through and, and learn um, on their own early on. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now in the Knicks. Their problems. Uh, on the road have been, you know, just as bad to some degree. But, you know, I like what I saw and continue to see from Porzingis, his aggressiveness at the end of game, that putback uh, dunk that he had uh, to put the Knicks ahead towards the end. I mean, this guy is, is rapidly developing into a star player. I mean, he should be in the mix this year for an all-star berth. And the way he's going, um, you know, it might not be even uh, consideration as much as a lock pretty soon. You were around both the teams the other night, and I'm saying the Knicks and the Thunder when they played against each other. What were your biggest takeaways from just being around both of those teams? Well, I mean, Russell Westbrook is ridiculous. I mean, that's for starters. Right. Um, you know, every time he's out there, it's you know he's become must-watch TV, and it looks like he's out there. Um, you know, not try not not Ricky Davis style trying to get triple doubles, but. You know, actively, you know, trying to uh, to accumulate as much as many stats as he can because he needs to be everywhere. I mean, that team leaves off the floor. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but they're really bad, um, uh, offensively, even defensively, uh, to some degree. So, you know, watching Westbrook just kind of go nuts uh, out there was was really something. And really, Chris, it, it you know, I've asked a few people around the NBA this um, uh, about the whole MVP discussion. Now, usually. MVPs go to a team that finished in the top two or three uh, in the uh, in the conference standings. That's been kind of the mold uh, for most of this sort of MVP voting era. Uh, I think Russell Westbrook has a great chance to break that mold. I mean, the Thunder, you know, kind of at best, they're a five seed. They might even be a six or seven seed at the end of the year. But if Russell Westbrook averages a triple-double, something we haven't seen in a very long time, it, it might be kind of automatic for voters to hand him uh, the MVP because he'd be doing something – that, that is just unprecedented in this modern era. I saw you ran a Twitter poll about that the other day, kind of like if Westbrook averages a, 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 a triple-double, is he an auto MVP? Yeah. What were the results on that? It, it was high. It was in the high 60s that, that said that Russell should get it. Um, and I've talked to, to other MVP voters. I've been an MVP voter uh, for years, uh, and they've kind of shared the same sense that the mold has always been a guy on a top two or three team, but – if there isn't one that distinguishes themselves, and frankly, there could be. I mean, 
you know, we talk about Kevin Durant and how we'd have to sacrifice and he wouldn't be an MVP candidate in Golden State. Well, lo and behold, he is an MVP candidate in Golden State and one of the best players in the NBA right now. LeBron having another fantastic year. Those two guys, if they play a full 75-plus game slate and average what they're averaging, they might be able to sneak out uh, an award. But if either one falter or either one miss games because of injury or otherwise, Westbrook has a chance to jump in there and do something we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, I'm trying to go back. I just pulled up the MVPs, like when you were saying break the mold. I mean, I don't even know. And I'd, I'd have to, I hate to have to do this off the cuff. I'd have to go do all the research. But, like, the worst record that won an MVP, I mean, I'm looking back. It's Curry, Curry, Durant, LeBron, LeBron. Yep. Rose, even Rose's team won like 60 games that year. Um, well, I believe they were the number one seed that year, I think, right. in, um, uh, right ahead of uh, Cleveland. And then there. it's two LeBrons before that, and then a Kobe, and then Dirk Nowitzki, Nash, Garnett. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, even Iverson going back to that, and then you got all the Jordans and the Birds and the Moses Malones. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody on a Midland team has ever come close to winning an MVP. <laughs> No, you're not going to see in basketball kind of a Mike Trout situation in baseball where Trout was the MVP um, in the American League, but his team was was awful. Um, It just doesn't work that way in the minds of of basketball voters. Now, I don't think that Oklahoma City can be the eighth seed and Westbrook will get enough votes to win the MVP, but if they can stay in the mix in that four or five slot, and even within shouting distance of them in a couple of games, at the end of the season. I think you're going to see a groundswell of support uh, w- with those numbers uh, for people to vote for him. Yeah, I'm looking back because uh, the there's a 07-08 Lakers. I mean, that was the Kobe team. They won 57. They won 57 games. Eh, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I mean, Oklahoma City ain't winning 57 games, Chris. No, no, they're not. They're, like I said, they're, when Westbrook's off the floor, they're really bad offensively. And, and, and when you watch them play um, – you know, they'd love to go to Steven Adams a little bit more. Um, they see an incredible upside in Adams as an offensive player. He continues to evolve uh, really every single year he's been in the league. But with no Durant out there, teams are kind of starting to wall up around Adams and dare somebody else to beat them from the outside. And you know, right now, you know, Oladipo can do it sometimes, but you know, Roberson doesn't really scare a lot of people. Uh, Cantor. You know, not all that scary, especially when you have to put him on the perimeter. Uh, it's it's a really ugly offense when Westbrook comes off the floor, and, and that's not going to help them uh, get in that 50-win range. What do you think about Hornacek? Is he built for that New York job and all that comes with it? Yeah, he, he's built for it. I mean, he's a very easygoing guy and, and clearly an intelligent guy. Um, I just feel bad for him in some ways. The, the narrative is always something that's completely out of his control. Um, and usually it involves Phil Jackson. I mean, the, for Phil Jackson to conduct that interview with Jackie McMullen before, uh, early in the season and, and really just put the spotlight back on him for reasons that, uh, that are just beyond me. If he wants to talk about the Knicks, talk about the Knicks. He rarely talks to uh, Knicks beat writers about the team. But, but why do that kind of wide-ranging interview where you know you're going to be asked – about the likes of Pat Riley and Greg Popovich, and, and you're asked to criticize the Lakers to some degree, why would you do that when the focus should be on your team? You're, you're forcing your coach to get involved. You're forcing um, you know, your players to get involved. Use of the posse comment. I mean, this, you know, Hornacek, if left alone, 
I think Hornacek can be a good coach. Remember his first year with the Suns, it was a 48-win team. They surprised everybody. Injuries derailed him towards the end in Phoenix. I think he's a very good coach. It's just an almost impossible situation for a head coach to succeed at, especially when he doesn't really have the autonomy that most other head coaches have. How do you think they figure out the whole Porzingis being this budding possible superstar while on the team with Carmelo? Do you think it'll be just a natural transition to Carmelo being the sidekick, or do you think something's got to give? No, I actually think it'll be a more seamless transition um, than people think. I mean, Carmelo Anthony, you know, he loves his shots, and he wants to get his numbers, but Carmelo wants to win at this point. I mean, he he has been on so many bad teams uh, over the years, and believe me, the – the success of his peers of Wade, Bosch, and LeBron, you know, that, that sticks at him. That needles him. So I think I don't think anyone would love the evolution of Porzingis into a star more than Carmelo Anthony. Now, not to say there won't be some rocky moments along the way with Melo as he tries to um, you know, accept that end-of-game situations might be Porzingis with the ball or have his shot, uh, shot attempts go down. But I don't think he's going to sit there and pout that he's not the alpha male Anymore. It's really never been Carmelo's uh, Carmelo's style. Uh, the question is, can the Knicks get you know enough around those two players in the coming years to succeed? It's all going to be based on who they draft, uh, the success they have, not with the big name free agents, but the second tier type of guys. I mean, Chris, look around the league. The, it's the second tier free agents in the last couple of years that 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 make a difference. I mean, I was talking to Luke Walton the other day. Was singing the praise of Timothy Mozgov, who, uh, uh, who was you know, viewed as kind of an overpaid uh, parade to signing. The Portland Trailblazers have been a mess for, for weeks because Al Farouk Aminu, uh, who was widely panned as a signing a couple of years ago, is out of that lineup and they, they lack a defensive presence. Those are the type of free agents that the Knicks need to hit on, not the, you know, the LeBron types, but those second-tier guys who can help flesh out that roster. Sounds to me like you think Carmelo gets a bad rap. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, it's hard to play in New York for, in any sport. It really is. Because if you're the alpha male on a New York Knicks team or a New York Yankees team, you know that if you go you know, 1 for 14 shooting or if you bat 0 for 5, that you're going to have a, a mob about 6 deep around your locker all going to be questioning your shot selection. And when that happens a lot or, or when the struggles of the team happen all the time, it takes a special type of person uh, to, to play in this town, in New York City, and, and succeed at it. And, and GMs tell me all the time, like, they, they can't believe how, how, you know, sort of easy the, the criticism sort of falls off Carmelo's back. He goes one for 14 one night and gets criticized. It's not going to influence him one bit going out and playing with the same level of confidence the next night. So I respect that a lot about Carmelo. I know he's a flawed player, and, and he's certainly less perfect than, than the Wades and the LeBrons of his draft class, but I don't think he's just as gunner as some people portray him to be. I think that's a super fascinating discussion that I hadn't really thought about, that he still takes all the bullets, right? Like, if they lose, yeah. the first person people look at in the box score is Carmelo, whereas, and that actually is a great thing for Porzingis, wouldn't you think? Because he's a young guy. Like, if he's, like, I remember famously, um, you know, there was this guy uh, years ago, uh, this guy Frederick Vice, right? You remember the name? That, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Carter jumped over him in the Olympics, and I suppose that's what he's famous for. But the Knicks drafted him, and they were in – now, listen to this, Chris. They were in Summer League, Summer League, and he played, like, horrible. The next day, the back page of the post was like, 
French toast with like a picture of him like laying on the ground, right? And I mean, he's just can't can't handle like what the hell did I just walk into? And I say that to say, Porzingis, young, just getting used to it. Obviously, he's in the in the in the bright lights in New York City. But if he has a bad night, he doesn't get destroyed, right? And if he has a good night, it's like Porzingis and and this and this and this. Whereas yeah. Carmelo, still to this day, Carmelo has a three to three for fourteen night. He's probably on the back page, you know, Mellow Stinks or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he is. But I'll tell you this much. Um, you know, whenever Carmelo Anthony's time in New York is up and it's, you know, Porzingis front center, I, I think he can handle it. I mean, you I've do. been around him for a couple of years. I've done some stories on him out here uh, in New York. And, and when you talk to people in the organization, and if you just kind of observe him in these media gatherings and how he responds uh, to adversity, um, it, it doesn't – it doesn't affect him in the way it affects some other players. He plays with a very quiet confidence every single night. I mean, there was a stretch last year where his three-point shot was, I mean, erratic was being nice about what his three-point shot uh, looked like, but it didn't dissuade him at all from going out and and continuing to shoot and continuing to believe um, that he could score on anybody in this league. And I think he has that kind of Carmelo-like mentality uh, where where he's going to be able to handle this city pretty well. Yeah, uh, you were at the Clips Nets game in Brooklyn the other night, and it, I mean, this was for any NBA fan that was paying any attention. And obviously, everybody saw the uh, the gifs, etc., of of Doc Rivers going insane uh, at the end of the game against uh, with Ken Maurer. Um, is this as ridiculous a game as you've seen in a long, long time? Just being there in that arena to witness that all unfold. Well, it was ridiculous because it didn't seem like for a while that either team uh, wanted to win. Um, it, it was, I mean, when Doc got tossed, the Clippers were down two with, you know, what, like, you know, 30 seconds or less uh, left, and you assume that two technical free throws plus two free throws, this game would be iced. And then I forget who it was, but he goes up there and you know, misses three out of four at, at the free throw line. And, and it just became just a total go meltdown uh, from both sides that, that the Nets were able to kind of you know, dig their way out of, thanks to, you know, Brooke Lopez, of all people, jacking threes. I mean, what is with these seven-footers who net – you got one in Memphis. What is Mark Gasol doing? I mean, he's just firing threes up at, at, at a rate we haven't seen before. Everybody, it seems like, uh, in the NBA is, is a stretch five right now. But the Clippers couldn't do anything uh, defensively, and that's their biggest problem right now. I mean, they were so good – defensively in the first two weeks, three weeks of the season. They were shutting down teams. Now, even in wins, they're playing terrible defense. I mean, Sacramento put 115 on them. I think the Raptors uh, did the same thing. The Mavericks 108. Uh, the Nets, if people say, well, it was double overtime, well, the Nets in regulation had like 109, 110 points. I mean, that's that's not something the Clippers can accept and ex- expect to be uh, a winner uh, in this league. Now, some of it you can attribute to to fatigue. They played 19 games this season, which as of yesterday was like the second highest uh, in the league. But uh, they've got to find a way to tighten up that defense because the only way they can hope to succeed against Golden State in the postseason is that they are a top five defensive team. And right now they're not playing at all like it. What was crazy about the other night is if you were from like overseas and somebody just, uh, you know, and you'd never watched basketball in your life and they just set you in that arena. You would have thought Sean Kilpatrick was a was a superstar the other night. I mean, oh yeah, I saw him. I saw him play Memphis a bunch in in college because he played for Cincinnati and just I mean <clears throat> like dropped like thirty five on senior night. I mean the guy was unbelievable. I couldn't believe when he didn't get drafted, but he was one of those guys that 
who's old, right? I mean, I think he's 26 now when people are just getting a wind of him, and he's kind of fought his way up. But I love stories like that, right? I loved seeing Kilpatrick the other night because he was an outstanding college player in a pretty good conference, and then he just had to battle his way in onto a team. It's not a good team, but he's a – I mean – I mean, that was a big stage the other night. It felt like, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, NBA fans, were all watching. A kid drops 38. Yeah, yeah, he was great. And, and you know, not to get too Nets-centric here, but the Nets have been high on him since Billy King was was the general manager there. Um, you know, they, they believed that, that this kid could develop. They, they believed they found, like you said, an older player who, who a lot of people kind of missed the boat on, and he can develop into a quality uh, rotation player. Now he took a lot of shots. I mean, he had 38 points on 34 shots, and that's a, a pretty absurd number uh, uh, for a guy like that. But you know, <laughs> if they can just get him to to develop uh, nicely and, and, and keep Brook Lopez around for a couple of years, they might at least have the foundation, the beginnings of a foundation of something, which is not something you can say for the Nets very often. Yeah, well, you wrote about after that game about the Clippers and their defense. So, I mean, what do you think? Do you think it is fatigue, or do you think there's something intrinsically? Uh, problematic with the way that team's built. Well, I was talking to Jamal Crawford about this for a while and, and trying to kind of pinpoint, you know, where things went wrong after that early start. Now they, they'll never admit to the fatigue part, but if you look at their schedule and the number of games they've played, I think that has to play a role in it. I mean, there's a reason Blake Griffin was sitting out, you know, what the, the 19th game of the season uh, for rest reasons. So I, I think that that's a factor. And what Jamal was telling me was that the way they play defense, like everything is kind of interconnected. So if they're struggling with one facet of their defense, say the pick and roll, that means pretty much everything else is going to, is going to struggle. They're not a team that's loaded with great individual defenders. I mean, DeAndre Jordan is certainly a great defender. Chris Paul, you put up there with the better defenders, but they rely on a solid team defensive strategy. And they've had some letdowns in that area that they need to clean up. But they, I mean, they all recognize what I was just saying. I mean, the only chance, the only prayer they have of succeeding in the postseason is, is one, to be healthy, and two, to be the best defensive team left standing in the playoffs. Because from what we've seen of Golden State and their offensive explosiveness, there's no way to compete with them unless you're a high-level defensive team. Well, they were an awesome defensive team to start the season. I guess that's the question, right? Was that a mirage or not? Yeah. Like, are, are they are they actually capable of being a big-time defensive team? If I look right now, just in terms of defensive efficiency numbers, I think they're still uh, rather high. They're still number two in the league, right? Even even yeah. given the, the even given the recent downturn, they're still second in the league in defense right now. Yeah, yeah, they've just had a rough. Um you know, five, six, seven game stretch here where they've given up a whole bunch of points. But look, they've been a good defensive team in the past. The question is, can they be a great defensive team? Now, I think the starting lineup is capable of being a a great defensive team. I've got more questions about the bench. Um, Some of their key role players, Crawford, Mo Spates, Austin Rivers, these aren't notable defensive stoppers out there. And they were kind of playing over their heads a little bit uh, early in the season, um, you know they, they're probably going to regress more uh, to the mean as we as we move forward yep. in this year. But if they can just be kind of average, you know maybe the Clippers might be might have something. On a topic that a lot of people have brought up, and I saw our buddy Zach Lowe wrote about it today, which is kind of this this overarching theme that this is it for the Clippers, right? If you, if if this ain't the year, yeah. 
then what? Right? Like, I mean, you, you sticking with this whole Paul, uh, you know, Griffin, Jordan triumphant, or you know, with when you got the whole Blake thing hanging out there, and so. That's why I think that's why the, you know people are paying so much attention to the Clippers. Besides the fact that they've got an outstanding record and they're right up there, and you wonder if they're going to be able to compete with, uh, you know, the Warriors. Everybody's looking for who could possibly compete with the Warriors. I think that's why they're a big topic. Not only you know their success rate and if they can stay healthy, but also if it doesn't happen for them this year, if this isn't the year that they make deep run in West finals or NBA finals appearance, maybe this is the last go with this, with this lot. Yeah, I I think it's possible. And and it's been kind of an ongoing narrative, Chris, for the first couple of months of the season, as everyone kind of looks at, you know, contract salary database pages and sees the opt outs that, uh, that Paul and Griffin have, and they'll both take it. There's no question about that. Uh, I mean, it would be financially stupid uh, not to take uh, that opt out, and JJ Redick, of course, uh, being a free agent. But whenever you you say, "Well, they might lose these guys, or they might go elsewhere," you have to sort of also add, "Where would they go?" Now, there's been this kind of natural um, instinct to connect Blake Griffin uh, to the the Thunder. In the Thunder have Russell Westbrook. Griffin played his college basketball at Oklahoma. He's from that area. But you know, I was talking to people in Oklahoma City over the last few days, and there have never been any indication that they've gotten that Blake Griffin would even be remotely interested in coming back home uh, to play there. So I think it's, it's, it's highly likely that Blake resigns. And, and Chris Paul, too. I mean, where's Chris Paul going to go at this point? Is the dream still alive for Chris Paul to go to New York and play alongside Carmelo uh, with a new team? And would that new team be good enough to get past Cleveland over the next couple of years? Or even Boston, which is an emerging team, uh, over the next couple of years. I think these guys wind up staying exactly where they are uh, moving forward. Now, the Clippers have to figure out a way to, to supplement that roster. They've got to find ways to get better on younger, frankly, on their bench. But that starting lineup, you know, anything can happen, I guess. But if I was a betting man right now, I would say it all stays together for at least another couple of years. Yeah, the interesting thing about the Oklahoma City stuff that comes up, which is, you know, Blake played his college basketball there, et cetera, et cetera. We do have to look back and go, all right, what's track record here? I mean, Oklahoma City, and this and this may be why Kevin Durant plays in Golden State now, they've never signed a big-time mm-hmm. free agent, ever. And no. that's even when they had no. Durant. They had Durant and Westbrook. If a, if a big-time free agent was ever going to sign there, wouldn't you think they'd sign on to go play with Durant and Westbrook and take a run at the title? And they were just they were never able to get that guy. Yeah, and, and look, they, they had a shot at Al Horford this summer. Um, Al, you know, wanted to know from both those guys that they would be there. Um, he wanted uh, firm commitments uh, from Durant and, and Westbrook when I was hearing that that they would uh, stay long-term. And he didn't get that, um, you know, there's no way he's going to Oklahoma City and, and leaving a, a situation he loved in Atlanta and a better situation uh, in Boston. But Griffin, the only, I mean, the only hope is that, that the pull of home is, is, attracts him. And, and that's not always the case. I mean, Kevin Durant had zero interest in the Washington Wizards this offseason because the Wizards represented home to him and he didn't want to go there. So it's all, it's all kind of conjecture at this point. But, you know, that, uh, the, the, the belief or the hope out there in Oklahoma is that, that Griffin might want to play back there again. I'm glad you brought up Horford. You're around that Celtics team a lot. What do we make about the Celtics about a quarter of the way through the season? You know, very much incomplete. Um, you know, Horford missed, what, eight games or so with a concussion. Jay Crowder's been out uh, with the ankle injury. Um, 
you know, this this team needs to get all these guys back and healthy for a month, two months before we know exactly what they are. Uh, watching the game though last night against the Pistons, that defense needs work. It, it's bad. I mean, you shouldn't be allowing the Pistons to. Well, I believe we're on a second night of a back-to-back there. Um, you know, scoring at will basically uh, against Boston. Now, in the past, Boston has been a very good defensive team. I think Horford can make them a better defensive team as he gets more acclimated in Brad Stevens' system. But right now, that that is the biggest question. And I, I still believe, you know, steadfastly that Boston is the second best team uh, in the Eastern Conference. I mean, when these guys are all on the floor, I mean, they're they're talented at five different positions. Jay Crowder is one of the more underrated forwards in the NBA. I happen to think Avery Bradley is the most underrated player in the NBA. Any team, any player, Avery Bradley's most underrated because of what what he can we know what he can do defensively. I mean you're around Tony Allen a lot in Memphis. I put Avery Bradley right up there with T A among the best wing defenders, uh, perimeter defenders in the NBA. And right now he's averaging twenty points per game. I mean he's he's putting up monster numbers that nobody seems to be paying attention to. I mean all these stuff combined, I think that come January, February as long as they stay healthy, they're going to emerge as the second-best team in the East. This is just a bad day for you to jump on the uh, Avery Bradley's the most underrated player probably just because he was terrible last night. <laughs> he probably had his worst game. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he was terrible, but look at those numbers, man. I mean, he, he, I mean and, and look, the, the defensive stuff, like I've asked Dwayne Wade about this. You know, Dwayne, you know, I talked to him about you know the time. Avery's had to defend him a lot in the playoffs over the years, and he ranks Avery right up there with T.A., as the toughest defender uh, in the league. And when you layer on the offense that Bradley's played throughout the course of uh, the last couple of years, and one thing I love about him is that he improves every single year. He gets better with his game every single year. I mean, he he is on one of the best contracts in basketball, and he has become one of the best players in basketball. You sound like Danny Ainge trying to swing a deal. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I I guess there's nobody I wouldn't trade if I'm Danny at this point for a star, but... I'd be hesitant to trade an Avery Bradley. He's that good. I'll tell you this, on the, on the Pistons side, I actually flipped them on a league pass the last two nights. I mean, they beat the hell out of Charlotte. And I know Charlotte was in a yeah. bad schedule spot with the four games and five nights. But that was still, like, mega impressive to me. And then they turn around and win at Boston last night on the second night of back-to-back. And they were up. They were up big in that game, too. Yeah, it's impressive. I mean, they're getting some, you know, yeah, their young, their backcourt especially is, is playing really well with Reggie Jackson and Catavius Caldwell Pope. Some of these role players are. are well, Jackson's not even back I mean, yet. It's friggin' it's friggin' Ish Smith. Yeah, Ish <laughs> Smith. Sorry. Yeah, I mean these they're playing. I mean they're they're getting some some great production from all these guys. They're scary. I mean we we worried about the the Jackson injury, of course, uh, coming into the season, how it would derail uh, uh, this team overall. But uh, they, they've gotten some. Some guys stepping up, playing some great basketball. So when they when Reggie is back and, and playing with Drummond, I mean, we saw Chris at the end of last year. I mean, they they looked like a team on the rise. They were a widely projected, um, you know, four or five seed in the Eastern Conference, and one that could give somebody hell in the first or second round. Now, uh, you know, we, we, they're still waiting to get all the way back, but they certainly look like that type of contender. Yeah, staying afloat with Ish Smith is pretty is pretty great because, I mean, like last night he plays 36 minutes. He's 9 of 12 from the field, 19 points and yep. eight, re, 8 rebounds, 8 assists. Like, uh, all right, what were you expecting if you did have Reggie Jackson? Do you want 19, 8, and 8? I mean, who Ish Smith? So, get you some. You got, you got to love Ish Smith, though, as like the Pistons savior this year and – what was he? Philadelphia's savior last year. Like he, he was the guy everyone was oh, talking been, about last year. He's been on twenty teams in Philly. 
Yeah, but in, in Philly, like when they signed him last year, it was like, wow, we got a point guard. We got Ish Smith uh, on the team now. I mean, he's he stepped into some roles and played really nicely. Speaking of point guards, unfortunately this week uh, the uh, the first big, big injury has taken place, and that was to the Grizzlies, who uh, were sitting in the fourth spot in the Western Conference, and Mike Conley with the uh, with the vertebrae fracture is going to be out, uh, reevaluated in four weeks, expected to be out at least six weeks for the Grizzlies, and they're going to try to get by without him, and... You know that's a, that's a, a, you're talking about them playing 20 games without him, which is a massive portion of the season. And you look around the Western Conference. I've got to imagine that uh, when that news came across, while everybody feels bad for an injured player, a lot of teams and a lot of fans got really wide eyed, thinking that there's there's an opportunity there if the Grizzlies falter as much as is possible without Conley. Yeah, that was. That was brutal because, as you know, Conley was having uh, what his best year probably yeah. uh, of his career, and 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 looking at him and, and you know all the 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 eye popping or the eyebrow raising rather of the money that he got in the off season. I mean, you know this. I mean, the Grizzlies had to do that, and frankly, Conley for that team is worth it. I mean, for what he brings both on the floor and off it. I mean, he earns if you guess if you guess you can say that for 150 plus million dollar contract, he earns every nickel. But it, it it's hard to it's hard to be optimistic about Memphis's chances of surviving this if it is, you know, six weeks to two months uh, with this back injury. They just don't have the depth in that backcourt. They don't have somebody like a Mario Chalmers, perhaps, to step in and kind of, um, you know, ease the transition a little bit. And even if they did, it's hard to replace Conley uh, with this group. I mean, they're they're going to have to go back to just old school bully ball. I think. I mean, I think they really have to try to lean even more on Marcus Saul, even more on Zach Randolph, and just try to slow the game down to a crawl and win it that way. It's not a solution, and frankly, I'm not convinced it would work, but it might be Memphis's only chance to, to stay in games with Conley out because the Western Conference, too loaded with the playmakers, too loaded with, with star guards, and I don't know where Memphis is going to get any kind of offense out of that backcourt. All right. Well, I uh, uh, many people know I, I my studio is in FedEx Forum. So walking around these premises the last couple of I mean, Chris, it's like a morgue. I mean, it's so yeah. depressing. It's so depressing. And they've got an interesting this for for any for uh, NBA, NBA fans that are out there. Which uh, if, listen, if you're listening to this podcast, you're an NBA fan. Um, they've got an interesting proposition here because I think they're going to have to swing a deal they might have to swing a deal they're bringing in listen to this this is what happens when you lose your star point guard so they're bringing in three guys to work out they're bringing in tony douglas they're bringing in kendall marshall and they're bringing in uh will bynum right and i guess they've kicked the tires on norris cole who's now in china you know, just to try to get by possibly in the short term. Because there's guys out there like a Chalmers or like a Jarrett Jack, but those guys aren't available right now. Like, they can't play. They're both still coming back from their injuries. And those are more like long-term, those are your backup point guard guys. So this is one of the crazy rules about the NBA. You have to have four guys that are out at least uh, four games, right? All right, maybe three games. And then you can apply for an injury injury exemption, okay? So, and then you can get a 16th roster spot. So then you could sign, let's say, Tony Douglas or whoever, just somebody to try to, like, you know, stick a, uh, put a, a, a try, to, try to get you by. So, yeah. so anyways, 
basically, after the Grizzlies play on Saturday, they're going to have to go to the league and they're going to have to declare. Like, Mike Conley's out. You have to say that the players are going to be out for two more weeks if they're going to be out, right? So Conley's, Conley's for sure out for another couple of weeks. Brandon Wright out for another couple of weeks. They would have to basically go to the league and say and declare Chandler Parsons and James Ennis, two of their you know biggest minute wings, are who are both on the who are both uh, you know sitting now, would both be out for another two weeks. This is why being in a front office is not easy. All right, because that's the decision you're having to make. Would you rather have Tony Douglas or Kendall Marshall or whoever the hell you want to bring in, right? Ain't, right. But you then have to declare two of my better players aren't going to be playing at all. And so yeah. that's why I wonder, I can imagine that the Grizzlies are just calling around the league everywhere, trying to find like some kind of, you know, somebody that some coach is pissed off at or whatever. <laughs> but, but look at it this way, though, Chris. I mean, the market for even average players is is pretty high. I mean, you saw uh, Jeremy Jeremy Grant, you know, what he drew. He drew a protected first-round pick uh, from Oklahoma City. Um, you know, the, you just can't yeah. – I mean, even, even if you like a guy, the, the asking price is going to be so steep. And if you're in Memphis, what do you really give up, you know, for a stopgap type of solution? How much do you mortgage for a stopgap type of player? I mean, this is that old line they say, close your eyes and think of England. I mean, this might be one of those moments with – um, with Mike Conley being out, you just kind of got to you know bite down and hope yeah. that a Wade Baldwin type or somebody can you know catch lightning in a bottle and turn into uh, a decent player when Conley's absent. You'll love this one. So I don't know if people know this, but Bynum, one of the guys they're bringing in to work out, that's Tony Allen's best friend from like way back. Mm-hmm. Like Bynum used right. to pick up Tony Allen to like Tony Allen isn't Tony Allen unless for, except for Will Bynum. Bynum used to go and like pick him up and drive him to school to make sure he was going to class, right? And the yeah. best the best story, so, and of course, Tony didn't have the grades and ended up having to go to junior college or whatever else. Thus, the story of Mr. First Team All Defense. But Bynum, in high school, you'll love this, Chris. So Bynum is trying to keep Tony out of trouble in high school, okay? He ends up signing him up for football, so that he will stay out of trouble. But they end up, uh, Tony doesn't have the grades to play football. And so they call him, and it's so funny that as the years go on, they mark him down on the roster as Antonio Brown. And it's funny that Antonio Brown's probably the best receiver in the world. So they sign him up to play football as Antonio Brown, but he's ineligible, right? So they put him down as Antonio Brown. He had like six touchdowns in a game, and he was in the newspaper, and all these college coaches started showing up, and they're like, who is the 6'4 tight end <laughs> playing for this high school? And Tony Allen never played football again, right? So they signed him, they signed him up. His grades sucked. They changed his name. He plays in a game and scores six touchdowns as Antonio Brown. The newspaper writes all about it. College coaches are like, who the hell is Antonio Brown? And they were like, oh, forget about it. He can't play anymore. <laughs> That's great. That's vintage Tony Allen there. How good is that, right? So I'm kind of, I'm kind of hoping, that, Tony. I'm kind of hoping they sign Will Bynum just so I get more of those stories. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Will Bynum as a player too, but I mean, it, it's. 
it's you know you have to be the ultimate optimist to think that a, a Douglas or Will Bynum or whoever can come in and and fill those shoes. I mean, he knows as well as anybody, you know, just how much responsibility is heaped on the shoulders of Mike Conley every single night, and how easily he kind of handles that. And right. and just yeah, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I can only see a scenario where they're just playing dump and chase with with Gasol and Zebo and hoping that they can survive triple teams. Uh, and keep them in games. I got a couple more questions for you. We'll be back right after this. Late Night TV just got darker. Jesus Nice and the Kid Miro have landed their own Late Night TV show on Viceland, the new channel from Vice. It's called Jesus and Miro, late nights at 11 p.m. You may know these guys from the Bodega Boys podcast. Yes, podcasters can become TV stars these days. You might also know them from Twitter.com. Apparently, Twitter people can get TV shows, too. This is not your typical late night show. No A-list celebrities selling their movie, no scripted jokes, no band, just two guys from the Bronx giving you their takes on culture, politics, sports, entertainment, and other subjects they don't really know anything about. Watch the show because Miro has mad kids and Jesus loves sneakers and they're funny and other late night shows are corny. Watch Jesus and Miro on TV on Viceland every Monday through Thursday night at 11 p.m. Go to Viceland.com to find your channel and check out some free episodes. The brand is strong. Ringer NBA podcast also brought to you by Dick Sporting Goods. Youth sports matter. Student athletes are four times more likely to attend college and 11% more likely to graduate compared to non-athletes. Physically active kids also have 40% higher test scores and are 50% less absent. Despite this, $3.5 billion have been cut from school sports budgets in the recent years. This especially affects low-income families, which are four times more likely to decrease participation in sports due to cost. Programs around the country are losing funding at an unbelievable rate. They need your help. Join us in the quest to get green laces on sneakers across the country and help save youth sports. Purchase a pair of Sports Matter green shoelaces at Dick Sporting Goods, and $2 of your purchase will help underfunded youth sports. Go to sportsmatter.org to learn more. Swap out your laces and help save youth sports. All right, Chris, so we've talked about uh, things that have been going on around the league, some of the injuries that have taken place. Uh, we have also mentioned some big-name players and trade possibilities or whether or not they're going to get moved. Who do you think is who do you think is the most likely huge name that could get moved? Is it Cousins? Well, I, I don't believe that Cousins is going to get traded. Now, it, it's a fluid situation, of course, in Sacramento – and if that season goes completely off the rails, I think it makes it more likely. But everything I've been told from people in Sacramento is that as long as they're in the playoff chase, DeMarcus Cousins isn't going anywhere. I mean, they just opened that new building. They would like nothing more, even as an eight seed, even getting blown out by Golden State in the first round, to be in the postseason uh, with this group. So as long as Cousins is, um, is, 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 as long as that team is in that mix, Cubs isn't going anywhere. Now, it's not a big name, but his teammate Rudy Gay might be more likely. I mean, Rudy's, you know, uh, he's, he's at this point one step away from being George Costanza in the parking lot with the, with the trophy around trying to get fired from Sacramento. I mean, he, he, wants, he wants to be traded uh, from the Kings, and the Kings have explored some options, including uh, talks with Oklahoma City. But uh, he might be a name on the move as far as – as other big names on the market, I mean, there are teams that are, are aggressive. Boston is aggressive, but they're trying to move uh, some of their young talent. It seems like Jimmy Butler is not going anywhere anymore with the way the Chicago Bulls 
have started their season. Orlando could make a trade to free up that logjam of players they have in the front court, but that's not that, that's not a lot of sexy names down there. Nobody's getting excited necessarily about Busevic uh, with the Magic. So right now, I don't know if there's a a monster name on the market. Just some of those second tier guys you could see move before February. I think Busevic could move the needle for somebody, though. I do. Hey, I, I think he'd, he'd be helpful. Don't get me wrong. I think he's good, but it's not going to be. You know, headline splashing, I guess, for people. And that's They need to move somebody. I mean, that Orlando team looked misconstructed uh, at the start of the season, and they look it right now. Yeah. All right, so let me uh, – uh, so if we're looking at the Western Conference standings right now, as it stands, it seems as if early in the season everybody was high on the Jazz, and now it appears they were right about uh, – this team is top uh, top 10 in offensive efficiency, top 10 in defensive efficiency. They went through the Hayward injury. They went through the George Hill injury. Favors missed some games. But it looks like, you know, at, they, they've won the last four games in a row. It looks like they're going to continue this trek up the standings in the West. Fair? Uh, oh, yeah. No, nobody is driving the Jazz bandwagon as much as I am. I mean, I, I've been a believer in this team – for the last couple of years, they are incredibly well constructed. Uh, the young talent they've acquired over the years is one thing, but I thought Dennis Lindsay did a phenomenal job of supplementing that roster with veterans that can play. And I remember talking to the coaching staff last year about what that team needed to take the next step. And it wasn't just veterans, it wasn't veterans like Minnesota had last year on the back end of the bench that weren't doing anything. And that included uh, Kevin Garnett. They needed veterans that could play. Uh, significant minutes. They got exactly that. I mean, George Hill has been fantastic for them. George Hill has been a lifesaver for them uh, coming over in that trade. Joe Johnson is a shot maker that they're going to be uh, able to take advantage of. Those players are are helping the development of the likes of Hayward and Gobert and Derek Favors. Barstia, too, you can add him uh, into that mix. I I think the Jazz are the fourth-best team in the Western Conference. I really do. I I think they're going to rise very quickly now they're starting to get healthy. Will they do anything in the postseason? That might be a little bit of a stretch. But right now, they can get to 50 wins and be the fourth seed in the Western Conference. That's a major win uh, for the Utah organization. Most of the teams that are not very good were probably expected to not be very good. Um, but I'm not sure people thought that the Wizards would be 6-11. and Certainly nobody expected for the Timberwolves to be 5-13. and um, Would you say at this point right now, Timberwolves m- most disappointing? Uh, yeah, but I think the expectations uh, were probably a little high uh, for them. Uh, I mean, I think we all kind of saw the talent they had and the type of coach that Tom Thibodeau is and said, you put these two together and you're going to have a team that get off, gets off to a meteoric start. But like we said at the top of the show, I mean, you just can't uh, coach or educate players on how to win at the end of games. It's organic. And then the Jazz and, and the Thunder, two teams we've talked about, are great examples of it. Look at the Jazz from a couple of years ago. The Jazz were, the first half of the season, they were stumbling through the end of games. They were losing bad road games. They couldn't get their act together in the fourth quarter. Same thing with Oklahoma City in the early Westbrook and Durant years. Uh, They learned both those teams and have gotten a lot better. To me, the the Jazz are also a good example for, for the Timberwolves moving forward because those two years ago, when you look back at what the Jazz were, over the final two months of the season. They were one of the best teams in the conference over the final two months of the season because they started to have their young talent evolve and mature. That's what Minnesota's got to hope for. Forget the record this year. Forget making a run at the playoff spot. 
be one of the best teams in the West over the final month-plus of the regular season. If you do that, you're going to be in great position for the next season. All right. Uh, well, we've talked a lot about everything that's going around the league, Mannix, but I, I, I must sell you out right now and tell everybody out there, oh, I love, I love getting to do this, that I have seen you treat Uber as if it is Tinder. Chris Mannix is the guy that will pull up Uber, and you know, like for anybody out there that uses Uber, and the face of the person that is going to be your Uber driver comes up, Mannix, will you cop to this, that you will keep flipping through and not accepting Ubers until you get somebody on your screen that appears to be someone who will not speak to you when you are in the car. I can absolutely confirm that, and I say it with steadfast pride, because as a a frequent traveler uh, and someone that spends the majority of his time either, you know, writing, reporting on the radio, uh, talking uh, in these kind of situations as well, the last thing I want to do is get into an Uber car and talk to somebody. I don't want to tell you what I've been up to, what I do for a living. I don't want to have any conversations with you. That's why, I mean, you and I have had this conversation in the past. There needs to be a quiet ride option on Uber. There has to be. Hit a button, demand that you don't talk, and just cruise. If that means, you know, there's no better way to get five stars from me than to never talk. There's no better way to get two stars from me than to try to engage in a long-going conversation that I'm clearly not into. I think we should get credit for it. I I have, have, Chris, I have canceled Ubers because the driver they gave me looks a little chatty. How can you look at someone and tell if they are going to speak to you or not? I, I don't know. I just do it. I, I just, I, it, it, they, maybe they have a big smile on their face. I want someone that looks miserable. I want some angry-looking dude that's sitting there like, I don't want to talk to anybody either. My favorite, Here's the ultimate sellout. My favorite text I've ever gotten in my life was one you sent me of a picture, and it said, this Uber driver is hearing impaired. And you sent the picture and said, jackpot. Jackpot. I want the, I want to book that guy for the rest of my stay in Memphis. I wanted that guy to be my personal driver to and from the games. He can't hear you anyway. He's perfect. I, I, would exactly. think, I would think that's a little dangerous, though, all right? Like, I don't know. If I, I don't know. I'd like the idea of not talking. But we, listen, Uber, if you do this, or uh, uh, you, we should get credit for this, right? If you put in a quiet ride option, you should at least, like, give us some stock in the company or some crap, right? Because this is what a- I'm saying. We're, we're on the record here. We, yes. we are. We can back this up with, with multiple conversations that have been archived. That's they right. need to do that for us. Or, or we're just going to create our own company called Silent Ride. One or the other. Silent Ride works too. Silent Ride's perfect, is you know, and I think lots of people out there uh, would certainly appreciate. I just don't know why people want to talk. Like I get into the Uber and I have the glummest look on my face. I bury my face in my phone. I put sometimes I put the Bose quiet headphones on and they still talk. Sometimes I put them on my head. It's like, I, what do I have to do? Do I have to put Spotify on and, and blast it over my earbuds to make it clear that I don't want to have? any kind of conversation it's not personal i'm sure these people are wonderful people but the last thing i want to do in uber car is talk i want to put my head back i want to watch youtube videos and i want to take a nap my fa- my favorite is when you get on the when you uh do the fake phone call that's the best that's the best uber move oh yeah oh yeah yeah oh yeah no question
the fake the fake phone call like where you're actually where i mean there's some i don't know there's some kind of like lack of self-awareness that you must have to be talking into a phone that's a dead phone but it does stop people it does it does stop people from whatever talking works right whatever works <laughs> all right uh, uh last thing you're doing all this boxing stuff and you're doing a yahoo boxing podcast which i can't wait wait to listen to i saw that you uh i saw that you just interviewed uh, uh um buffer right michael buffer um, Michael Buffer, great stories from him. You know, he'll actually play your wedding or bar mitzvah if you put up a play. I mean, he'll announce it, which I think is awesome. I mean, think about it. I'm not married, but if I ever do get married, I would love to have Michael Buffer show up and introduce the wedding party. How much I mean, is he that charged? would be like, he, he wouldn't say. I think you have to have that conversation with him like, offline, and he'll, uh, he'll give you some numbers. But whatever it is, it's probably worth it. it probably, but he also does, one thing he does, Chris, is that He'll make a CD for you for probably a lot cheaper where you just have to announce. He'll just announce uh, uh, the names, the pre-recorded names, and you can play it over the uh, PA system. All yeah. right. These don't have to be long answers, but I do want to, since you do cover boxing so intensely, I got to know. Um, ch- percentage chance I get to see a Gennady Golovkin uh, versus Canelo Alvarez fight. Percentage chance I see Mayweather Pacquiao again. Well, I think Golovkin Canelo, I would put it at 80%. I think it's likely to happen in September of 2017, as long as there's no injury issue with Canelo over the next few months. He can't hide forever, and he's been um, beat up by the Mexican press pretty good, and that bothers him uh, a lot. Um, as far as Golovkin and uh, or as far as Mayweather Pacquiao, I mean, Mayweather showed up at that last Pacquiao fight, and you know that was – that, that sort of raised eyebrows because he's never been in a Pacquiao fight uh, before. But uh, I, I, I saw Mayweather in New York a couple of weeks back. He insists that he's retired. We'll see. I think that's more like a 25% chance moving forward. Chris Mannix, you the man. Thanks, brother. All right, man. We'll talk. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Ringer NBA Show. If you dig what you're hearing, go give us a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you on Tuesday. Peace.